Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you very much for the welcome. Good to see you all again this morning, and good to be back with you here in Monaghan. So let's turn immediately to the Word of God, and we're going to read this morning some verses from Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. We were in chapter 8 last week, and we've moved on a little bit, and we'll fill in a little bit of the, the gap. But let's first of all read the Scriptures together. We're in Acts chapter 11 as we continue to trace the move of God in the Acts of the Apostles. We'll begin at verse 19, Acts chapter 11 and verse 19. And do keep your Bible open when we've finished our reading. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And we'll just end the reading there, knowing that God will bless his word again to our hearts. So just by way of a brief reminder, let me remind you we have been tracing the move of God throughout the Acts of the Apostles. We weren't in chapter 2 last week, but we referred to it and saw how that move began in Jerusalem with the coming, with the advent, with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, bringing great revival to the streets of Jerusalem, thousands being converted. And then we moved to chapter 8, and we saw there the revival breaking out in Samaria. After the death, the stoning to death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, there was an eruption of persecution, and the believers were scattered. And we read again here in Acts chapter 11 of the scattering of the people. And Philip moved to Samaria, and there he preached the gospel again with great power and saw a great move of the Holy Spirit, so much so that we saw in Acts chapter 8 how multitudes, let's not 
uh, gloss over that word, how multitudes came to the Lord, and how many miracles of healing, and many miracles indeed of the, the, uh, the, the release of people from bondage through evil spirits took place. As we move on from Acts chapter 8, the years are moving on, we move to chapter 11, and in between, of course, there's two very significant chapters. There's chapter 9, where we read of the conversion of Saul, who, of course, became the apostle Paul, and we see what an amazing man of God he became, and we'll see some of that today and hopefully two in the next two weeks that we have together following the break next Sunday morning. Then in Acts chapter 10, we have the conversion of a man called Cornelius. This is highly significant because this is the first recorded conversion of a Gentile. And we see how God moved in his life and how he brought together his family and his friends, and how God moved in their lives, how they were soundly converted that had a little light before this, and with that little light they began seeking God, and then God put it into the heart of Peter to go with them and to minister the gospel to them. The Lord had to deal in very many severe ways with Peter, who carried many of his prejudices from Judaism with him into his Christianity. And we see the Lord preparing Peter by demolishing those prejudices and those biases so that he and Cornelius came together and there was a marvelous outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then we continue to move with the Holy Spirit here in chapter 11 in this Syrian city of Antioch. And again, we see the revival reaching this very strategic city in Syria. And I'm sure the cry of your heart and the cry certainly of my heart is that God would, would visit us, that God would move among us in a very significant way. We thank God for the mercy drops, as the hymn writer puts it, but we long also for the showers. We, we thank God for those who are coming to Christ in their ones and in their twos, and who knows among them? There, there might be one like an Ethiopian eunuch who was able to take the gospel back to Ethiopia with him, as we see from the latter part of chapter 8. There may be a Cornelius who was able to influence his home and indeed influence his nation. There, there may be those among the ones and the twos like the Apostle Paul, whom, whom God will raise up to be mighty preachers, to be mighty evangelists, to be mighty revivalists, who, though their life counts only as one, through that one, are blessed by touching scores and hundreds and even thousands. And that's what we long to see, whether we live in the north or the south part of this island. We long to see people coming to God, not just in their ones and their twos, though we're thankful for it, 
but we long to see people coming in their multitudes to Christ. We long for a great sweeping, a great moving of the Holy Spirit across the land. And of course, that will only come whenever you and I are willing, whenever you and I are prepared as Peter was prepared, as Paul was prepared. That will only come when you and I begin to seek God. That will only come as you and I begin to unite. That will only come as we experience, as the pastor has reflected already this morning, a, a personal revival, a, a personal baptism of the Holy Spirit. And some people are a little suspicious of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. But there's a beautiful description of it in Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius and his household received the gospel, we read there in verse 44 of Acts chapter 10 that the Holy Spirit fell on them. The Holy Spirit fell on them. And that sounds very sensational and very dramatic, and no doubt it was. Certainly, it was sensational and dramatic for those into whose lives the Holy Spirit was poured out. But some people are suspicious of the sensational, suspicious of the, the dramatic, suspicious of anything that veers from the norm, that swerves from the usual. But let me just unpack, if I may, that little expression in Acts 10, 44. It's not our subject this morning, but it occurs to me to do that just at this moment. We read the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius and upon his household. And they began to uh, speak in tongues. They began to manifest gifts of the Holy Spirit. And they began to magnify God. They filled the place where they were with the praises of God. And when you move back a little in your Bible into the Gospels and go to Luke chapter 15, the Gospel of Luke chapter 15, you have there the very well-known story of the prodigal son. And you'll remember how he wasted his life and his substance in what the Bible calls riotous living, how he was reduced to abject poverty, and how he, he groveled his way home, rehearsing a speech on the way that he would, uh, he would present to the Father about how he was no longer worthy to be called his son. Make me just one of the household servants. You, you'll remember all of that. And you'll remember too, I'm sure it's a very well-known story, how the Father saw him a great way off. And we read the Father ran to him. And listen, we read not only that the Father ran to him, but we read that the Father fell on him. He fell on his neck. Now, what was that? That was an expression, that was a demonstration of overwhelming love. It was an outpouring of love. And where we read in Luke 15, the Father fell on him, we find the very same construction in Acts chapter 10 and 44, where we read the Holy Spirit fell on them. The Holy Spirit falling on them. 
The Holy Spirit falling on you and me individually. The Holy Spirit falling on us as a, as a church, as a corporate body, is not something to be wary of, not something to be suspicious of, not something to distance yourself from. It is an outpouring of the love of God for you and for us. Be open this morning to receive that outpouring of love. And look what it resulted in. It resulted in an outpouring of praise. They magnified God. We often pray, and indeed I think I even prayed it in the vestry myself this morning, that God would fill his house with praise. But you know, we really don't need to ask God to do that because it's up to us to fill God's house with praise. And we've got to praise God from whom all blessings flow. We creatures here below, praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Begin praising. Begin filling your heart. Begin filling the house. Begin filling the house of God with praise. And who knows what the result will be. And so we're longing for revival. What is revival? Well, we have our New Testament definitions of it here, but let's think of what others who have experienced revival describe it as. You'll have heard of Duncan Campbell, who in the 1950s was reused mightily by God in the Hebridean Islands off the coast of, of Scotland and saw mighty revival, saw hundreds saved, saw whole townships saved, saw every church packed and people falling prostrate before God and calling out for their salvation. And he describes revival, listen, as a, and I quote, a going of God, a going of God among his people. It has to begin with the people of God. A going of God among his people. And, he continues, an awareness of God laying hold of the community. An awareness of God laying hold of the community. It starts with us, then it reaches out to the community. Is that on your heart? Certainly, it's on my heart this morning. I could multiply definitions. Dr. John Simon, who uh, is an historian, having written of the, the, the Methodist revival in the 18th century, describes revival like this, that it is, quote, new life, bringing new joy, new life, bringing new joy. After this pandemic, and we're told it's not over yet, we, we could do with some new joy, couldn't we? we? We could do with a real injection of joy. And revival is described thus as new life, bringing a new joy, and goes on to describe revival as the weary church. Are you weary this morning? Is the church weary this morning? Are we weary 
of the same old? Are we weary of the routine? Are we weary of the rut into which so many of us have dug ourselves? Revival is the weary church finding its lost youth. It's the weary church finding its lost youth. Charles G. Finney, an American who was used much in revival, not at times without controversy, but nevertheless saw a genuine move of God in many parts of the USA, describes revival as a fresh impulse toward heaven. A fresh impulse toward heaven. We can become so self-toward, self-centered. We can become so church-centered. We can focus so much, too, on the things of this old world with their allurements and attractions. But revival brings a fresh impulse toward heaven. Indeed, he goes on to describe it as a new foretaste of heaven. And that's how the scriptures describe revival, as, as heaven touching earth. Uh, J. Edwin Orr, another great revivalist and historian of revivals, reckons that the best definition of revival is the phrase found in Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, which describes God's move, God's pouring out of His Spirit, describes Pentecost and the subsequent revival that touched uh, not just Jerusalem, but as we see, touched all of Judea and touched Samaria, and we see it touching now other parts of the earth. The Ethiopian eunuch takes it back with him to Africa. Other parts of Africa, North Africa, are touched. Europe is touched, as we see, as we go through the New Testament together as, as briefly and as quickly as we can over the time that we have left this morning and in our subsequent uh, third and, and fourth sessions. God willing. And Acts chapter 3 verse 19 speaks of those times as times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Times of refreshing from the promise of the Lord. That's the revival that we seek and that's the revival that we need. Coming back to Acts chapter 11, and we'll be very circumspect with time, we, we see yet again, as we've noted already, the scattering of the people, as we read there in verse 19, again subsequent to the martyrdom of Stephen, we read that the believers traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word at first to no one but Jews only. These scattered believers fleeing persecution which seemed so adverse to the church, so opposing to the church, but in actual fact resulted in the, the, the multiplication of the gospel 
throughout the world, the, the, the dissemination of the gospel, just as Jesus said uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit would. You'd be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. Persecution gave rise to that, gave the occasion for that, gave the impetus, the impulse to that. And we see the believers traveling far and wide. They travel as far as Phoenicia. Phoenicia is what we call Lebanon today. That's the modern-day Lebanon. They, they traveled to the island of Cyprus, the Mediterranean island of Cyprus. No doubt some of you have maybe even been to Cyprus for a holiday. I haven't time to give you um, a resume of all my holidays over the years, but let me just add that every time I go on holiday, disaster strikes. And I remember when we went to Cyprus, I ended up with a dose of septicemia, and I didn't see the sun the whole two weeks that we were there having uh, encountered this uh, just a day or two into the holiday. I, I could regale you with stories of other parts of the world where I've broken bones or ended up in hospital, <laughs> but that would only bore you, and it's not our subject this morning. So they traveled into Lebanon. They traveled to Cyprus, and then we find them reaching Antioch. And Antioch, of course, at that time, was the capital city of Syria. And as the crow flies, was something like 300 miles from Jerusalem. So the gospel is spreading. The gospel is taking wings. And the gospel is reaching far corners. Uh, Antioch was no mean city. It was a city of around half a million people and had a Jewish population at that time of about 70,000 people. In fact, Antioch was the third largest city of the Roman Empire in the first century AD. The largest city was Rome, the second largest city was Alexandria, and the third largest city was Antioch. And the believers who came to Antioch, as we read here from Cyprus and from, or rather, yes, from Cyprus and from Cyrene, and Cyrene, by the way, is what we today call Tunisia in North Africa. They, they are not named, or rather, Cyrene is in Tunisia which is in North Africa. They're not named, but they are faithful to their calling. They bear witness to the gospel wherever they go. They preach Jesus Christ. And again, we made much of that last week. And we noted again from verse 20 of Acts chapter 11, we read that they were preaching the Lord Jesus. That's what we preach, the Lord Jesus. We preach not ourselves, Paul was to say later, but Christ Jesus the Lord. While we're thankful for our movement and we're thankful for our denominations, we don't preach our movement. We don't preach our denomination. We preach Christ. We don't preach on the latest news, although that may help to illustrate points at times. We don't preach current affairs, though again that may touch on what we're preaching. 
but central to our preaching must be Jesus Christ. We're not called to sermonize or philosophize. We are called to evangelize, and we can't evangelize without lifting up Jesus. It's he who will draw people to himself. Indeed, the faithfulness of these people had far-reaching and blessed consequences because as we read here in chapter 11 of Acts, not only did a great number believe, as we read in verse 21, and then again in verse 24, a great many people were added to the Lord. That's powerful in itself. Notice again, it's not just the ones and twos, but it's a great number. It's, it's, it's a great many. And also, as a consequence of this, the Apostle Paul, whom we read of coming to the Lord in Acts chapter 9, was released as a result of this, as a result of Barnabas going and fetching him uh, from Tarsus and bringing him to Antioch. This resulted in the Apostle Paul, along at first with Barnabas, being released into ministry that was to touch the whole of the known world for Christ. Again, just to give you a little inkling into time, we move from one chapter to another, and we think there's only a day between them. But Paul had now been in Tarsus for something like eight or nine years as, as God was training him uh, and disciplining him uh, and preparing him for that day when he would step forward, as it were, onto the world scene with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all of that resulted because of the move of God in Antioch. Maybe you're waiting for a day and you've waited for it now for months, you've waited for it for years, for, for an answer to prayer or for the fulfillment of the call of God upon your life and you're wondering, will that answer ever come? Will that day ever dawn when, when this that's within me, when this that is upon my heart, when, when this which, which God has called me to will be realized, will be fulfilled? Brother or sister this morning, that day will come. It came for Paul, or Saul as he then was. He had to wait something like eight or nine years for it, but it came. And the waiting time was not wasted. God was molding him. God was shaping him. Let him do the same for you. God was preparing him. These are not wasted moments. These are not wasted years. They are to make us more effective as an instrument in God's hand for the furtherance of the gospel and for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. This church that was founded at Antioch was to become very strategic to the missionary calling of the church. It was from there that Barnabas and Saul went out on the first missionary journey. We need to be missionary-minded. Um, we are not called merely to be parochial people, that is, us only and, and our community, but we are called to be planetary people, not parochial in our mission and in our outlook and in our ministry, 
but we are called to be planetary. We're to go to the continents of the world. And if we cannot go, we're to send others. And we're to support those that we send. That every part of this globe, every part of this planet might be touched with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, a Chinese preacher called Leland Wang said there are three types of missionaries. The first missionary is a go missionary. Now, not everyone can be a go missionary. God calls people and sends them out. They're go missionaries. Not everyone can be a go missionary. But we can be, as Leyland Wang goes on, we can become the second type of missionary, and that's a co-missionary. We can be a co-missionary. That is to say, we cooperate with those who go. We cooperate in giving. We cooperate in prayer. We cooperate in all the support that we can possibly give to them. We are there, perhaps not in the same country, in the same land that they have been called to, to which they have gone. But we are behind them nevertheless in seeing that their needs are supplied. How Paul thanked many churches for supplying his needs so that he could take the gospel to the world as he was so called. So we can be a go-missionary, we can be a co-missionary, and then the third type of missionary is the type of missionary that we ought not to be and should not be, but so often can be, and that's an O-missionary, an O-missionary. You know what an O-mission is, don't you? It's something that you've forgotten. If you omit to do something you have forgotten or you have neglected to do it. And so Leland Wang suggests to us if you can't be a go-missionary, be a co-missionary, but don't be an O-missionary. Don't forget those who have gone. Don't forget the need of the world is Jesus, just a glimpse of him. And this church at Antioch became a strong church. It, it, it became a church not only with Jewish but with Gentile members, as we see in some of the names in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, who were part of that church. Its strength was not in the quantity of its members, but in the quality of its members. And we read there in Acts chapter 13 and verse 1, I'm taking you a little further now on from Acts chapter 11, that there were certain prophets and there were certain teachers. There were people with giftings. There were people with caliber. There were people there who had a real experience of God and who moved in the prophetic and who moved in, in the power of the Holy Spirit. This strong church had its strength not in money nor in influence, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. They were a strong church and they were a seeking church. In Acts chapter 13, we read how they ministered in verse 2. They ministered to the Lord and they, they fasted. They were seeking God. They were seeking God to lead them, seeking God to direct them, 
seeking God to show them what kind of a church they should be, seeking God as to where they should concentrate next in their evangelistic and their missionary efforts. They were seeking God to move among them and to raise up among them people who would be true, people who would be faithful, people who would be diligent, people who would be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. They were a seeking church. We sung this morning, oh, to be a, a, a seeking generation. Let's be that seeking generation. Let's be that seeking church. Church, seek God. Seek God for your own life. Seek God for the life of the church. Seek God for the community. Seek God to see what part you can play, even in the life of one, if not in the life of multitudes. They sought the Lord in prayer and fasting, and God broke into their seeking with direction. God broke into their seeking with prophecy, and they became a sending church. The Holy Spirit said, now separate me Barnabas and Saul. Here were two of their best members, two of their best teachers and preachers. And the Lord says, separate them, let them go. We have to be prepared to let people go in the will of God as they respond to the call of God. Separate me Saul, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And they sent them out. They were a strong church because they were a seeking church. And that seeking church became a sending church. They cooperated with the Holy Spirit and their sending was to spread the gospel far and wide. Let's be such a church. And closing now and winding up with just a few sentences through the scattering of the people, we have seen the spreading of the Word. The Word of God preached with Jesus at the center. That's what happened in Jerusalem. It's what happened in Samaria. It's what happened at Caesarea. It's what happened at Antioch. Preaching the Lord Jesus. Preaching His person. Preach the humanity of Christ. Preach the deity of Christ. Preach the purity of Christ. Preach the ministry of Christ. Preach the miracles of Christ. Preach His passion, His, his sufferings, His substitution, His sacrifice. Preach His power, His power to rise, His power to save, His power to heal, His power to keep. Preach the saving power of the Lord. We read in verse 21, going back into Acts chapter 11, that the hand of the Lord was with them. The hand is a, a symbol of power, of strength. It's a symbol, too, of security. It's with the hand that we hold and we clutch and we cling. It's a symbol of provision. The open hand caters. The open hand provides. The open hand ministers. And it's a symbol of blessing. It's with the hands that we, we lay the, the touch upon, the anointing touch upon, upon others. Let's go 
Let's go with the, uh, the name of Jesus. Let's go in the saving power of the Lord. Let's go with the hand of the Lord upon us. And let's go with the support of the team, the support of the team. We see teamwork in Acts chapter 11. Believers from different parts cooperating together. And as a church, we need to cooperate together. There needs to be teamwork. We need to be in it together. Every team needs workers. Every team needs leaders. Every team needs encouragers. Barnabas was the son of consolation, according to a title given him in Acts 4 and verse 36. We need teachers. We need to balance the moving of the Spirit with the power of the Word. And above all, we need the Lord with us. The Lord working with them, we read in Mark 16 and verse 20, confirming the Word with signs promising. We need people of instinct, instinct for the work of God. We need people of innovation, people who, who dream big dreams, people who, who see a problem and go further and see the solution. We need people with input, who will input the lives of others, who will minister to the lives of others. We need people with instruction, people who can teach, who can teach adults, who can teach young adults, who can teach the children, who can teach the men, who can teach the ladies. We need people of instinct and innovation and input. We need people of instruction. And we need inspiration, people who will inspire. And above all, we need the Lord to inspire us, to, to get that, that get up and go, get up and going. Amen. Well, I'll leave you with that thought this morning. The team needs the spirit of unity and the spirit of humility, as seen in Barnabas seeking Paul, not seeking glory for himself. And even later, Barnabas was to fade and I'd started out on the first missionary journey that it was Barnabas and Saul, and then he became Paul. Uh, and we read thereafter that Paul is mentioned always first. It's Paul, and it's then Barnabas. It's Paul, and it's Silas. We need people of humility who seek glory not for themselves but for God. And may God forge us into such a team, such a body, such an army for his glory. Amen. God bless you.